Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Crux True Survival Stories. I am your host, Casey McIntosh, and today I have wonderful guest host. Hi, I'm Julie Henningsen. And today we're going to be talking about Greg Hine, who survived six days on remote Goddard, Mount Goddard, in Kings Canyon National Park. On July 5th, 2014, Greg Hine set out to do a solitary climb at Mount Goddard in Kings Canyon National Park, which is a 12,563-foot climb. He planned on taking three to four days to complete the climb, but on the second day made a decision to grab a handhold during his descent, which would change the course of his life because it dislodged a much larger boulder and it sent Greg down the mountain with a severe injury. So Greg Hine had recently completed his bachelor degree in environmental sciences from Humboldt State University, and he just felt the time, he just felt at that time he needed to get out and get some R&R. He just deserved some time away from life stressors and whatnot in his life. His trip began on a Thursday morning when he left his parents' home and road trip for three hours to the trailhead in Sierra National Forest. He told his father when he was going to be leaving and when he planned on returning, which was the following Monday. So Thursday to Monday, he planned on a three to four day loop. He wasn't really sure how long it was going to take him. It was going to begin and end by soaking in some hot springs called Blaney hot springs. And the total distance traveled would be about 20 miles. seems doable and nice with the hot springs. Mount Goddard is a mountain in California's Sierra Nevada in the northern area of Kings Canyon National Park. This peak was surveyed in the 1850s by a civil engineer named George Henry Goddard. The name was given by a survey party led by William Brewer in 1864. During this year, the California Geological Survey Party had attempted to climb the mountain twice without success. Oh, so it's a challenging uh, mountain. I would think so. But also remember this was 1864. So I'm not sure. I don't know. There's a lot of different factors that would make that more difficult. I would suppose at that point. Yeah. Okay. So maybe I told you it was 12,000 feet before, but it's actually 13,564 feet. The first descent on record was September 23rd, 1879. Um, And these two guys were able to make it up. But again, it's one of those climbs where it's not, there's not a trail. There's a lot of climbing and scrambling involved. So the route that they took was considered class two and class three. Class two involves scrambling using both hands. Class three is a little bit more challenging and it's nice to have a rope, but it's pretty doable usually. So for those of you who may be a little bit sheltered like myself or live in other areas of the world, the Sierra Nevada is a mountain range in the Western U S that is primarily in California. The Carson range uh, is mostly in Nevada. The Sierra Nevada is part of this nearly continuous string of mountains that sort of forms a backbone extending 400 miles long. The highest point is Mount Whitney. And, um, there's, it's a huge area. There's three national parks, 10 national forests, 26 wilderness areas, and two national monuments. So all of this to say, it's a really extensive area. 
and some of the mountains have pretty high peaks and the terrain can be challenging. Have you ever been there, Julie? I have been there. I've spent a lot of time in Yosemite and the areas around there. So the, the summer weather in the Sierra Nevada averages between 42 and 90 degrees Fahrenheit, which is kind of a pretty big swing. And that's six to 32 degrees Celsius. Afternoon thunderstorms are pretty common in the mid to late summer. And they can amount to over an inch of rain in a really short period of time. Um, one thing I found really interesting about Sierra Nevada is how dangerous it is to fly an airplane over the Sierra Nevada. So apparently a ton of planes have crashed in the Sierra Nevada due to some complex weather, like different wind downdrifts and things like that. There's an area called the Nevada Triangle, which is Reno, Nevada, Fresno, California, and Las Vegas, Nevada, where some 2000 planes have crashed in the area. And there's all these, you know, people out there that say it's because of the aliens and it's because of Area 51 and all of these, you know, conspiracy theories. But I thought that, that was, was my, interesting. That was my first thought, Area 51. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're right. Who's to say? The Nevada Triangle. I'm going to avoid that. I know. I was thinking like, would you ever have to fly in a commercial airline over the Nevada triangle? I'm sure there is. And I'm going to avoid that flight at all cost. Yeah. Don't go, don't fly into Fresno for multiple reasons, but that's <laughs> one of them. okay. Good to know. So I picture this being sort of similar to Glacier National Park, which I'm most used to where there's lower land where there are trails and trees, and then you get above the tree line and then the trail is nowhere to be found and there's just rocks everywhere. There's some Karens. You have to use a trail guide usually to figure out what way to go. And then you're, you're just following these Karens hoping I I'm, I'm hoping I'm not going to get cliffed out going up one of these directions. And of course it's way easier to go up than it is to come down, which is an interesting thing. And how you can get into trouble when it's so easy to, to go up and you don't realize it's going to be more work to come down when you're more tired too. Well, the other thing too, is a lot of situations you might have a heavy backpack on if you're planning on going for multiple days. And that adds a whole nother element to climbing difficulty, but back to Greg, he started out at 8 20 PM on Thursday night and he began hiking. He didn't mind hiking in the dark. So he just started on the trail. And then he camped overnight and as planned in the morning, got in the hot springs and then started his climb. I'm not really sure what time he started climbing, but he successfully reached the peak at 11 in the morning. And at that point, he noticed only two other hikers had made it to the top that year, which just tells you there's not a lot of traffic up there really. Yeah. Cause you wonder, okay, only two others made it out of how many people who tried to make it. Maybe it was like three or two, or maybe yeah. it was a lot more. And, and maybe more people had made it to the top because who's to say that every single person that summits is writing their name in that log. But in any case, I think he felt pretty good about himself that he made it. And at that point you sort of feel like all the difficulty is behind you when you get up to the top of the mountain. He had this plan of going off the trail, if there was a trail, so much to say, to this place called Evolution Basin, um, so he could avoid some side hilling and some boulder fields on the way back down. He continued down a ridge, and he scanned for this coolier. Did I say that right? Coolier? Uh, or couloir. Couloir. There you go. Okay. Okay. 
So a coular, which is a vertical crevasse, crevice, if you want to call it that, sometimes a simple line of scree just going down the mountainside, something that basically can fill with ice or snow. He made his way down. He was scrambling through some loose rock to the bottom of a gully and this really narrow area right above a snowfield. And keep in mind, this is really steep. He grabbed onto this small handhold that fit into the palm of his hand. And I've read a couple different articles about this, and I'm not really sure if he meant to pull that rock or not. You know, was he removing that rock for some reason? Maybe he was thinking, I'll use it to self-arrest if I start sliding down the snowfield. I'm not really sure what he was thinking, but he removed the rock and then he was going to put it back and realized that this boulder that was above it was moving. Oh, terrifying. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty big. It was about 125 to 150 pounds and it slid and it rotated and he didn't have enough time to do anything. There was no time. It just crashed down on his right calf, mm, snapped wow. his ankle at the tibia right above the ankle and simultaneously knocked him onto his back onto the snowfield, which was more like a chute. And then he started sliding like, you know, super fast down the chute. So I don't know if you've had any experience like on snowfields like this, but once you get moving on that kind of thing, it's really, really hard to stop. They're pretty slippery. Yeah, you can get out of control quickly. The other thing that complicates this is that there are these sunspots through the snow where, you know, your foot could slip into it. Before we go any further to find out what happens at the end of the snowshoot, I just wanted to explain that Greg is an experienced hiker. He had hiked solo more times than he could count for more than 15 years. And at the time of the story, Greg was 33. He was an avid outdoorsman since he was a child. His family had hiked together when he was small and he would go up all sorts of difficult terrain. And when he was a teenager, he spent a lot of time in Sierra Nevada. And during his college years, he went out into the mountains for a week or more. Um, and during his senior year of college, he had taken a break from school and he worked as a wildland firefighter and a cave naturalist and a rafting guide and lived in Alaska, Oregon, Vermont, and Utah, and then later returned in 2014 to finish his degree. So he definitely had some experience in the outdoors. So back to the story, Greg was thrown onto his back again from the force of the boulder and he began catapulting down the steep snowshoot. These holes from the sunspots were perfect place for his foot to go. And so he felt a couple times impacts of his foot smashing into the rocks below and he could feel his bones cracking and moving against one another. He was obviously in a lot of pain and he understood that he needed to self arrest before he ended up getting shot off of the snowfield over a rock ledge or something like that. He was able to slow himself down using his good foot in his the palms of his hands. What he noticed after coming to a complete stop was that his tibia was protruding three to four inches from above his ankle, making it a compound fracture, of course, as you know. Yes. So I was interested in the amount of blood loss that you could have from this type of fracture. And I found a stat from National Institute of Health that you can lose 500 to 1,000 milliliters from a closed tibial fracture. And it can double in the event that the fracture is open. So on the you know high end, that's two liters of blood. And in an average adult, you have five liters of blood. So obviously, if you're not on top of it right away, it wouldn't take very much to bleed out from something like that, even though that's a little bit surprising. Yeah, that's a lot. 
That's funny because we always, in, in my uh, wilderness medicine training courses, we always say people don't bleed to death below the knees. But I think you can if based on that, based on those numbers. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I had no idea. And I, obviously this is an estimation. And so every situation is going to be different, but in any case, if you injure yourself badly enough, and of course there's all those blood vessels in your ankles. So if your bone is just hanging out of your leg, who knows what other injuries you might have. Yeah. Who knows what kind of blood vessels you lacerated that are just oozing blood. Ugh, crazy. So he knew he had to move quickly in terms of blood loss, which he noted before he even went down the snowfield. The second the boulder landed on his ankle, he saw that he was bleeding. Based on the condition of his leg, he realized he could lose it. And he was educated in first aid and made a creative move to use his thermarest as basically a cast. And then he put his long johns on top of the thermarest and used a belt over a couple hiking poles on either side of his leg to kind of stick it all together. Luckily, he was able to create a tourniquet situation and slow the bleeding down until it eventually did stop. He knew he wasn't going to be able to carry all of this stuff off the mountain at this point. He just had too much weight and, you know, it's not like he can really move very fast anyway. Yeah. I'm surprised he could even bear weight on that. If he was, maybe he was crawling. It'd be tough to walk in that situation. Yeah. He was definitely not walking. I was thinking it's too bad that he couldn't have used those hiking poles almost as crutches. But of course the terrain here is probably pretty steep and super rocky and that would have been really dangerous anyway. Yeah. He, he made this decision. Oh, I'm going to leave my food and water, which was about two days worth of food and water because he thought it was just too much weight. And he thought he was going to be rescued before he would need it just based upon his timeline. So this was Saturday that he was that Saturday. No, it wasn't Saturday. Sorry. It was, I guess it was Friday. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Friday is when he had the incident. At a long wait. Yeah, but he was like, okay, it's going to be a three, four days. And then, you know, my dad's going to know that I'm not coming back and he'll call. So just relying a lot on that, which I don't know that I would do that in that instance, but he felt pretty confident that someone would come looking for him. So he took with him a poncho, a multi-tool, a whistle, a, a bivy sack, his beanie, and some gloves. His hat and gloves went in his pocket. He was able to take this whistle off of his backpack and he hooked that to one of his buttonholes in his shirt. And the remainder of the gear he put in his baby sack, which was, you know, his poncho and his multi-tool and a few other things. He just slung it over his shoulder. Mm. And then he started kind of crab walking down so he could get to a place that was a little bit more stable for waiting. Okay, Julie, putting you on the spot, if you found yourself in this position, what would you want to have with you if you could have anything, which includes also Cheetos or Oreos, because they taste amazing when you're outside? Uh, well, you know, I think uh, I'd want food for sure, and I'd want tasty food, but I guess I'd want uh, a way to stay warm. Um, so the poncho, 
I'd want a way to start a fire, you know, so matches or whatever uh, fire starting equipment you might have. I would want food and water. I mean, those would be my top priorities. Warmth, heat, food, water, nourishment, a compass if I could, but he's not going anywhere, so. Right. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think also psychologically, it's hard to remain positive if you're hungry and thirsty. Yeah, it's hard to remain positive. It's hard to think straight. <clears throat> it's very true. And if I could get Cheetos and Oreos. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So this obviously crab walking was really incredibly painful. He had to work really hard to focus on what he was doing and think about his survival skills. And with great effort, he worked his way down and found some shelter in a moraine, which was a hundred yards from his initial landing spot. He had a pretty good view of the basin below and he thought he was just going to hang out there and wait for rescue. Uh, it was kind of a shelf like flat, broad rock. And he was able to move some rocky debris so he could extend his legs and get into his baby sack. Mm. Looking down into the basin, Greg didn't see any signs of human life. He was yelling help and blowing his whistle, and he was just listening to his voice echo off of all of the rock walls around him, which has to be really bleak. Periodically through the course of that day, he was blowing his whistle, just thinking maybe someone will hear it. He spent the first night out on that rock shelf, and as he lay shivering in the darkness, the temperature dipped into the forties, which is pretty cold when you have an injury like that. He found himself thinking about all the people he loved, like his mom, Randy, his dad, Doug, his sister, Kristen, and he had a new girlfriend. I'm sure he was playing things in his mind about what he would do if he was rescued and maybe thoughts about what was most important in his life. I don't know any of those things that you could be thinking about. He said that he entered into the idea of potentially dying a couple times he said, you really can't think about it too much. Yes, it does enter your mind, but you can't dwell on it there or it kind of incapacitates you. He's also thinking about his sister's birthday, which was coming up on Wednesday. And he was wondering about how if he died, that would just burn into her memory and she would always associate her birthday with his death. The next day was Saturday and midday on Saturday, he smelt this foul smell coming from his leg. He was hopeful that it was just the blood was in his baby sack kind of pooling but once he moved his leg a little bit closer to his face, he realized it was already infected, which is crazy. Oh, yeah, that's, that's like fast. really rapid. Yeah. Although I'm picturing crab walking with a open fracture and who knows what's getting in there and what's in his bivy sack to begin with. Right. And like, if you think about it, probably there was all the warmth that was right in there where he's, you know, hunkering down in this bivy sack. And I don't know, I'm not yeah. sure, but that mm. seems pretty quick. He said it wasn't painful. It was obviously infected because of the smell, but it wasn't hurting at that point. And he used some nearby ice crystals on the top of a snow patch to just kind of scrape and exfoliate all of the stuff on the outside. Um, I could go into further details, but I'm going to spare you the details because for those people with weak stomachs, they wouldn't tolerate it very well. Yeah. He was massaging his foot and trying to move his toes to keep the blood flowing, which he continued the process for three days, expecting that by Monday rescuers would be on their way. He periodically thought he heard voices that turned out to be birds or voices that were being carried from way further distances away. On Tuesday, it rained, but luckily he was able to dry out by the end of the day. And then generally it was warm during that time that he was out there. 
And he's not eating, right? He left his food and water behind? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was, he was putting snow in the rain poncho and letting it melt during the day and then drinking water from the rain poncho. Mm. That's good. Yeah. So on Tuesday, he was unable to straighten out his leg, which was getting him to, you know, a little bit concerned after continual efforts to move it. He was finally able to move it back at home. His father was a little bit worried because he wasn't back by Monday. And by Tuesday, he became really concerned when he returned from work and found an empty house. And he was slow to call the authorities because he knew that Greg was really experienced and he didn't want to ring the alarm bells too soon. Also, Greg's mom was in Las Vegas at a conference. And so Doug was really worried about like, okay, if I really make this phone call and I alert everyone, then she's going to be panicking and she's not here and whatnot. But eventually he ended up having to call the search and rescue. Well, he called the, the sheriff's department, the Fresno County Sheriff's department. And by that same afternoon, there were dozens of volunteers from the volunteer search and rescue team that began scouring the area. The park service rangers also aided in the search efforts. Meanwhile, Greg is getting super thirsty. He knows that he needs to get to a source of water and there's a lake not too far away. It's about a mile and a half away. So he decides to relocate to the water. And that means that he has to inch his way down this scree field. And he basically uses the bivy sack to hold his leg out in front of him. And crab walks painstakingly slow, just like 20 little movements at a time. He would just, in his mind, go, I'm going this little bit of distance. And then this little bit of distance. He found a few grasshoppers and a few other insects that he munched on on the way down which probably burn more calories to catch these things than he actually was able to consume. But I guess, you know, do what you can do. He eventually got to the lake and it took him four hours to go one and a half miles. Wow. Which is probably so, good timing considering the way he was doing it. So theoretically then his water and food that he left behind must, well, I guess it'd be harder to go uphill, but must have been more than a mile and a half away. Cause I wonder if he considered just going back and getting his food and water. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't come across that at all, but I think he was just wondering if he would be better off at, at an endless source of water where there's like a Creek down below and obviously lying down on a rock bed for how many of her nights has got to get really uncomfortable. So and maybe it's a little bit warmer down that, you know, sometimes just a little bit of a distance can make a big difference in temperature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he drank some water out of a nearby Creek and was able to find a nice shelter by the lake on a bed of grass and wildflowers. Then he climbed into his busy sack and just hung out there. Meanwhile, his dad is calling his wife who was in Las Vegas again at this conference. Um, his mom, Randy, um, ended up having to rent a car because she couldn't get any flights out of Las Vegas, which had to be the worst six hour drive ever because she's concerned for her son. Obviously I can't even imagine. I'm always thinking about what it would be like to be in the position of the person that's out lost, but just think about the people on the other side of that who are wondering and they have no idea what's going on, how stressful that must be. Especially when it's your child. Absolutely. So by the end of that day, Greg could hear helicopters. Remember this. Is, so this is day five since the initial injury. They flew near him five or six times and he was out there waving his yellow bivy sack, but they didn't see it. And then finally, after a, quite a while, 
the pilot made eye contact with him and the helicopter landed and there were five to six men that unloaded and they were surprised at how good he looked considering how long he'd been out there and what kind of injury he had sustained. Mm, that's good. Yeah. During the same afternoon, Greg's parents drove to the search and rescue command center, which was in a trailer in the woods up by Florence Lake. They were given some maps of the area with plans for searching the area but within a short time of their arrival, Greg was being rescued. And soon after the sergeant's cell phone rang and he was elated to tell the family that Greg had survived. It was found. It was in the helicopter on the way to them right then. What a relief. Right. I know. I mean, an unexpected relief because after that much waiting, even though it hadn't been that long, I'm sure every hour seems like eternity. I'm sure they were so elated. So that night, Greg was lying in a hospital bed in Fresno with his friends and family surrounding him. He ended up going under a number of surgeries following the rescue, and he was overcome with the support and love from everyone. And, and he said, this is what it took me to finally feel at home, which is oh. really interesting. Yeah. He had a new lease on life. Right. I think sometimes you, you're looking for that kind of feeling in places that it doesn't exist like independently. I mean, it's easier to be independent than it is to have to rely on other people. But what you find is that actually that's where we're usually the happiest is with the support of others. And sometimes we don't realize that others are supporting us because they're not coming out and saying, Hey, I support you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Until they call SAR when you're a day late and drive, rent a car and drive six hours to come find you. Really? No, people really do love me. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure he kept his leg, which I thought was absolutely mind boggling because I thought for sure that it would have been amputated. I also thought it was interesting that he didn't become septic because that's a number of days with the compound fracture and he had infection on day two. Um, but I just wonder if maybe an injury like that's going to smell regardless of if it's affected. Cause I agree if he were infected on day two, I mean, that's a pretty long time to just hang out and walk away with an intact limb. I'm surprised too, that he didn't lose his part of his leg. Right. Yeah. It was truly infected. I would think, okay, it's going to be gangrenous by that point and you're going to lose your leg. I'm just thinking like, I can't imagine that I would survive that long with that kind of injury personally. I think it takes a certain attitude or certain determination, uh, to kind of be committed to doing whatever it takes to survive. You know, I think a lot of um, people who don't survive, uh, has a little bit to do with giving up with, uh, feeling defeated and not being, or not having the reserve to fight for it. Well, and sometimes we probably underestimate how effective our brains are at getting us out of problems, like how much more resilient we are because of our ability to choose our thoughts and how powerful that is. We kind of forget about that. So I guess that's a good reminder. Especially when, uh, you mentioned that he said, yeah, you know, the, the thought of dying creeps in, but you can't let that happen because it'll make you feel defeated or I can't remember exactly what it was, but it'll, you know, disable you from helping yourself. I mean, that alone right there tells you that this guy he had, he had some resources, some mental resources to on his own survival by just kind of having that kind of strength to control his thoughts and control what he was allowing to run through his brain. 
Yeah. Ideally we practice all of that stuff before we have a compound fracture on the side of a mountain by ourselves. But I was just thinking the moral of the story is don't go alone. Obviously if that's number one, tell somebody where you're going, of course, consider using a satellite device these days. That was 2014. So he probably didn't have anything like that at that point. Um, back to kind of what we said on our last episode to bring warm clothing, even if it's summertime, when you're at high elevation, it doesn't matter. Like it gets cold. Even in the afternoon, the clouds blow over it gets, you know, it rains a little bit. It can be really, really cold and then bring more water than you think you're going to need. And then take Julie's outdoor wilderness classes. I mean, what else? One thing you'll learn if you take wilderness and training is that when you lose blood, you are very susceptible to getting cold, even during the heat of the day on a hot day. That's how we thermoregulate is blood flow to our skin. And when you're down uh, a liter or even a pint, um, keeping your body temperature where it needs to be is a real challenge. Well, and the thing too, is that there's so many things now that you can bring that are compact, even like my down jacket, it packs into a really, really small pouch. So stuff like that, that you can throw in, even though it seems ridiculous when it's, especially in town, it might be 98 degrees, but by the time you get up to the mountains, it's considerably colder up there. Yeah. Especially at night, like you said. Right. So anyway, um, what do you think, Julie, anything to add to that story? That was a good one, Casey. I was on the edge of my seat. I was Were pulling, you? I was pulling for him, and I was <laughs> very pleased to learn that he didn't lose his foot. I thought that was a foregone conclusion. So that's what I thought too. I, I can't guarantee it a hundred percent. We might have to do a little bit of closing the loop on that one. But the picture of him in backpack mag- backpacker magazine showed him with a cast and some pins in it. So it, you know, his foot was attached. It appeared. That sounds promising. <laughs> Do you like my research? Oh, there's a photo. His foot was still attached to his leg. <laughs> That's good enough, right? Yeah. It says it all. Yeah. Well, thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Crux Two Survival Stories. I hope you'll tune in next time. Tell your friends. Give a n- nice review or not nice review. Just give a review if you want to. And we'll be talking to you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.